1, verses 3 and 4. But I'd like to read with you verses 1 through 11 of this chapter. This is God's holy word. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Next two verses are the text. His divine power, that is the divine power of Jesus our Lord, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire." For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So far, the reading of the word of the Lord. Dear brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, being a Christian is um, a matter of having some very specific beliefs. If you are a Christian, then you are a person who says, I believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in God the Son. I believe in God the Holy Spirit. It's their foundational beliefs that define us as Christians. This afternoon, however, the focus of the Word of God that we have chosen as a text is not on Christianity as a number of foundational beliefs, but rather Christianity as a way of life. Because what we believe about God the Father and about God the Son and about God the Holy Spirit inevitably will manifest itself in the way we live. It will show its power in how we walk through our daily lives. It will show in our relationships. It will show in work. It will show in school and the attitude we take into the classroom as young people. It will show in our relationships with the community in which we live Indeed, in all of our conduct, it ought to become evident that we are people who believe in God the Father 
and in God the Son, and in God the Holy Spirit. Everything we think, everything we desire, everything we say, everything we do, should reveal clearly that we are people who belong to a living and holy God, who has called us and has consecrated us to himself. Now, you're familiar with what I've just been saying, of course. Throughout your life, for many of you, you have been hearing calls to be godly. I'm sure you can tell about many a sermon that you've heard about how we need to be godly, how we need to show the style of the king in all that we do. And it might even be the case that some of you are getting tired of these calls to be godly because every time you hear it, it reminds you of the fact, perhaps, that you haven't made a lot of progress in being godly. And which one of us would say that we have made great progress in being godly? Perhaps we've made some progress in being godly, and praise the Lord if we make some progress in being godly. But it's a fact that sometimes the call to be godly can actually be discouraging because of the little progress that we've made in it. Maybe you're the kind of person who has heard the call to be godly and you've tried to be godly. Maybe you've read books about being godly. Maybe you read a book called The Pursuit of Godliness that I read when I was young. Or The Call to Be Holy, another book that I read when I was young. And so you've tried it and and yet here you are and you have to say that it doesn't feel like you've made a lot of progress. Well, if you find Christian living to be hard, if you find it a challenge to be godly, then I can say this afternoon to you, dear brothers and sisters, that this passage of the word of God should be deeply encouraging for you. The Apostle Paul says here that in Jesus Christ, God has given us everything we need for godliness. So not one thing is missing in what is necessary for us to be godly. God has given you, congregation of Sardis, corporately and individually, he has given you everything you need for your own personal and your corporate godliness as the people of God. As we dive into this text a little bit more this afternoon, it's important to realize that everything Peter is saying here about godliness and everything that you will hear about godliness this afternoon from the pastor that you have before you is coming to you as people who are already saved. Because you know if you hear all these calls to be godly, as people who aren't saved, are not washed already in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, it will be deeply discouraging for you, if not devastating. There is absolutely in the Bible a call to be godly, and there is a call in the Bible to grow in godliness. But that call goes to people who are already in Christ, who are already justified, who are forgiven, who are on the road already that leads to glory. This call of the Apostle Peter to godliness is a call that comes to people who are already accepted by God, are already approved by God, already acquitted by God, 
already welcomed him into his presence in worship. In worship, we draw near to the Lord. You are drawing near to the Lord. And when the Lord says to you, strive to be godly, that's not so that you might one day be able to worship the Lord. No, he says that to you as people who are already his children and already his worshipers. And so in that context, let's dive into this text and let's just go through it a little, little piece by little piece. It starts off with the words, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Whose divine power are we talking about here? We're talking about the divine power of Jesus Christ. The Jesus Christ who died for your sins is a divine Jesus Christ. And that divine Jesus Christ is the one who gives you everything you need for life and godliness. He's a divine Jesus Christ, and that means that for him, nothing is impossible. If Jesus Christ wants to bestow something upon you, then nothing can prevent him, for he is God Almighty as surely as is God the Father. We say about God the Father, he's God Almighty. We say the same about Jesus, he is God Almighty. And as the God Almighty Savior, he gives us, he grants us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In those words, life and godliness should be understood as a single concept. You could paraphrase simply by saying godly living or just the word godliness. So Jesus Christ, in his almighty divine power, has granted to us the covenant people, the believing congregation, the confessing Christians. He has granted to us all things that pertain to or are necessary for life and godliness. We should really let that sink in and feel the implications of it. You know what it means? It means that you will never get to a point in your life when you need something more than Jesus Christ. For instance, whatever you need to be godly in marriage, Jesus Christ will give you. Whatever you need to be godly in your singleness, Jesus Christ will give you. Whatever you need to be godly as a parent, Jesus Christ will give you. Whatever you need to be godly in embracing not being a parent, Jesus Christ will give you. Whatever you need to be godly in your work, Jesus Christ will give you. Boys and girls, whatever you need to be godly on Tuesday morning when you go to school again, Jesus Christ will give you. Whatever you need to be godly in your friendships, in your after-church socializing, whatever you need to be godly in your finances, in your holidays, in your sporting life, Jesus Christ will give you. Whatever you need to be godly when you have big problems. Those are sometimes the biggest challenges to godliness. We, we get big problems. We get struggles and troubles in our lives and things that we don't know how to deal with. It's really hard to be godly when life is coming over you like a tidal wave. But whatever you need to be godly when you're in a position like that, Jesus Christ in his divine power will give you. Some of you have experienced catastrophic losses in your life. Maybe just in the last while, maybe a year ago, maybe 10 years ago, maybe when you were little a long number of years ago. Catastrophic losses are a great challenge to godliness. It's really hard to respond 
in a godly fashion to catastrophic losses. But Jesus Christ, who is Almighty God, in his divine power, has granted to you everything you need to be godly, even then. What about if you're facing scorn because you're a Christian? What about if you're facing the peril of losing your freedom or losing your job or losing your life because you love Jesus Christ and put him above all other things and you're seeking his kingdom first and its righteousness? And because you're doing that, your life is getting hard and the world is closing in on you and it's difficult. If you think it's easy to live under persecution, you're a dreamer. To live under persecution is very difficult and it challenges fundamental convictions that we have. It challenges our desire even to be godly. But Peter's readers, they were facing persecution and he says to them as their pastor that the divine power of your almighty savior, Jesus Christ, has granted to you all that you need to be godly even when you are under the terrible pressure of persecution. In other words, there will never be a time in your life, there will never be a situation in your life, any circumstance of any kind whatsoever where you don't have what it takes to be godly. You will always have available to you by the divine grant, the divine gifting of Almighty Lord Jesus Christ so that you will be able to be godly in every circumstance. So if that's true, how does um, the power to be godly come to us? Well, we'll pay attention to the next uh, part of this verse, verse 3. It says that Jesus' divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So Jesus Christ gives you power in every circumstance to be godly through the knowledge of him. He gives you knowledge of him, of who he is, Jesus, Savior, Lord, King, Judge, Lover, Bridegroom. He gives you knowledge of himself. And it's in that knowledge of himself that we gain power in all circumstances to be godly. You see, if you don't know Christ, then you won't be able to be godly. You could go to ever so many uh, sessions with a counselor. You could go to a self-help program and participate faithfully for a year or two or 10. And that can be a very good thing, by the way. And you can follow a program and, and go to do a course, an online course, and you can say the mantra as you meditate, but none of this will produce even a speck of godliness if it is not connected to the knowledge of Jesus Christ in all of his multifaceted glory. Well, if that's true, then how do you get to the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Well, Peter answers that in the next clause. He says, through the knowledge of him, Christ, who called us to his own glory and excellence. And I gotta bother you here a little bit with a grammatical thing. If you look in 
verse 3 in your Bible, you'll see a little footnote beside the word to, and if you look down to the bottom of the page, you can see that it says, or by. And for a number of reasons, that is the preferred translation. So let's do it again. Through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So how did Jesus Christ call you? You know, theologians distinguish a general call that goes out to all who hear the gospel and an effective call or effectual call which goes out to all the elect of God and and inevitably works faith in their hearts. So how has Jesus called you effectually to faith? Well, he did that by his own glory and excellence. I put it to you, brothers and sisters, that everyone who has come to true faith has come to true faith because in some way they have seen and been captivated by the glory and excellence of Jesus. The gospel they heard pointed them to the glory and excellence of Jesus. And as that glorious, excellent Jesus was held before their eyes, that was the means through which he called them. He called them by his own glory and excellence. A small Jesus cannot call us. An inglorious Jesus cannot compel our faith. But a Jesus who is majestic and glorious, as he is witnessed to in the Gospels, as he is preached to you each and every Lord's Day, such a Jesus, so glorious and majestic, can call you effectually to true faith. And so whenever people come to faith, true faith, it is because their minds have been filled with the glory and the greatness of Jesus. It wasn't just that they heard a logical presentation about a Savior who did X and Y for them, but it was because they caught a vision of his glory and excellence. And Peter knew all about that glory and excellence of the Lord Jesus, by which he had been called to faith in the Lord Jesus. Peter saw any number of evidences of the glory and excellence of the Lord Jesus. For example, in the story we can read in Luke 5, we're we're with Peter in the boat, and some things happen in the boat that are beyond human explanation, things that Peter could never have rationally explained. And when he sees them, he falls down before the Lord Jesus, and he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. You see, in that moment of, miraculous um, working by Jesus, Peter saw something of the glory and majesty of Jesus, and he was drawn to that Jesus. And then in this chapter, chapter 1 of Second Peter, he refers to another event in his life when he saw the glory of Jesus. Let's look at verse 16 and following of the same chapter where Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. That's an event you can read about 
in the Gospels, of course, and Peter never forgot what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter was profoundly impressed by that revelation for, for just a few moments of the true identity and the divine glory of Jesus. He saw it. He wanted to make it permanent, and he never forgot it. It put a stamp on him, and it was things like that, these revelations of the majestic glory and almighty power of Jesus that drew Peter to Jesus. Jesus drew him to faith by revealing to him his majestic glory and majesty. You see, it's only when you come to know Jesus Christ as the one who is like no other, the one in whom all the radiance of God is present, when you know him as God of gods and Lord of lords and King of kings, only then will you experience for sure the power to be godly. So it's difficult to be godly. There are many challenges to personal and congregational godliness. But when we lift up our hearts to that glorious, majestic Christ who was revealed to Peter in the boat and later on the mountain and in all kinds of other innumerable ways, he kept catching glimpses of the glory of Jesus. And that glory is proclaimed to us in the gospel preaching we receive. It's in that way that we are drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. So godliness flows from a deep awareness of the glory of Jesus. In verse 4, Peter elaborates on what he's been saying thus far this way. He says that the glorious Jesus who, who called us by his own glory and excellence, and then he continues, verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may, you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. You see how ecstatic Peter is when he thinks about the promises of, of the gospel? You know, sometimes we get used to those promises. We see a child baptized in, in the midst of public worship, and we hear God's promises announced, proclaimed, and applied to that child or that young person or that adult who is coming to faith. Or we, we have the Lord's Supper set before us, and God's promises are are given to us in the form of bread and wine, and maybe we just get a bit used to it all. But Peter, when he thinks about the promises of God, he calls them precious and very great. They're precious. They're more valuable to Peter than anything else he could imagine. Peter was the kind of man who said, if all my earthly dreams were fulfilled, if all my hopes and aspirations and desires were complete, but I didn't have the promises of the gospel, then I would have nothing, and everything that I thought I had would turn to dust in my hands. On the other hand, if by the standards of this world you have nothing or very little, and you're just kind of scraping by, and many of your dreams have not been fulfilled, and some of your dreams have been dashed, well, it doesn't matter, because if you have the promises of God, you have literally everything. Because if you have the promises of God in your heart and you are receiving them through faith, who do you have? 
you have the Lord Jesus. And if you have the Lord Jesus, you have everything because who's the Lord Jesus? He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the heir of all things. And who are you? You are fellow heirs with Jesus. Fellow heirs of what? Fellow heirs of God's creation. So everything in God's creation is yours through faith in Jesus Christ. You see why Peter calls these promises precious and very great. Ask yourself again, what does God promise his believing people? What does he promise you? And remember when God makes a promise, he says, I stand behind my promise with everything that I am as God. I am the God of truth. I am unable to lie. I am unable to deceive. When I speak a word of promise, then I stand behind that for now and literally forever. So there will never be a time when when God's promises will be void or you can't count on them or they just disappear like maybe human promises sometimes do. We say so easily, sometimes I promise. We shouldn't say that so easily. We should only say I promise if we really mean it. But God always means it um, when he promises. So what does he promise? Well, he promises to wash you of all your sins, every single one of them. The ones of today, the ones of yesterday, the ones of a long time ago, the ones even of the future. He says, I promise, I promise, I stand behind this word. I will wash away all of your sins. I will make you spotless in the sight of God. That's an astonishing promise. He promises to fill you with his Holy Spirit. He promises you resurrection, life, and glory in the age to come. If we take all these promises of God and summarize them, we could say that what God promises is life. Life. He promises life. Life in fullness. I think of 2 Timothy 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. So God promises life. And that life is not just the eternal future, But that life is manifested already now. It's really remarkable as you go through the Gospel of John. John says so often in various contexts, he who believes has eternal life. It doesn't mean you have it potentially in a future sense, but he who believes has eternal life. And that eternal life that people who believe have is a life that never ends. But that's not really the defining thing about it. The defining thing about the life that we have now through believing is that it implies communion with God because that's what life is. Jesus says somewhere, John 17, to, to know God and the Son he has sent is eternal life. And so that's what the gospel promises, life for you, for your children, for everybody who walks in off the street and hears the same message God is the God of promise, and he speaks a promise of life. Peter describes that promise and its implications in the second half of verse 4 when he says, so that through them, that is, through these divine promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. You know, that's one of the most extraordinary statements in the whole Bible. That through these promises... By believing these promises, you become 
partakers of the divine nature. That's incredible. It's mind-blowing, really. Now you can get carried away with us and end up with some strange ideas about it. For example, we live in a community where there are Mormons, and the Mormons believe that the followers of their Mormon doctrine, when they die, will become gods. In fact, they will say that Jesus Christ was once a man like you, but then he died and he became a god. And what happened to Jesus can happen to you too. You can also become a god or a goddess. And there are lots of spiritualist groups out there in the community that have similar ideas about the deification of a human being. That's not quite what Peter is talking about here. Peter is not saying that humans will become divine. That's not possible. We cannot merge God's eternal nature with human nature and make of them some kind of new divine human creature. But what Peter is saying is that when you believe the great and precious promises of God and you make them your own by faith, then you become so closely connected to the God of all glory that his nature is stamped on you. I think this is Peter's way of talking about the divine image. Remember how in Genesis God made people in his own image. That means he put his divine stamp on them. And the Apostle Paul talks in various places about how when we believe, then we are renewed after the image of God. So that stamp on humanity is renewed when people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when God calls you, when Christ calls you by his own glory and excellence to faith, then the Lord Jesus Christ works in you in such a way that he stamps, as it were, his very nature upon you. So that just as he is godly, you become godly. So that just as he is righteous, you become righteous. Just as he is pure, you become pure. Just as he is holy, you become holy. Just as he is good, you become good. As he is compassionate, you become compassionate. As he is loving, you become loving. As he is just, you become just. And so all the attributes of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, are stamped upon you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the power of godliness. The power of godliness is not in some program that you can follow, although programs have their place. As long as those programs are connected to the true gospel, they can be a great blessing to you. But the power of godliness is not in the program. The power of godliness is in the Lord Jesus Christ who stamps his own divine nature upon you so that you become his image and come to resemble him in a relationship of love and communion. And that relationship with the Lord Jesus is called life. And so once again, the real power for godliness is actually well known to us because we are a Reformed community and one of the things that Reformed communities uh, always highlight are the promises of the covenant. We're a community that, that understands the doctrine of the covenant, and we hold it dear, and it pervades everything we do as a worshiping people of God. The real power for godliness 
is right there. It's in the promises of the gospel that are preached, that are declared in signs and seals, that are administered to you by your office bearers as they go about their work in the congregation. You know, you can, you can summarize a lot of the work of office bearers that way. You can say office bearers, elders and deacons, and pastors, they go about in the congregation and they take those powerful promises of life and they, they repeat them to you and they apply them to you and they work them out in your situation so that you are renewed in your confidence that everything you need for life and godliness is found in those precious and very great promises. So I guess the question before us this afternoon is simply, are we hearing those promises and are we believing them? Are we just taking them for real, trusting them, just like you would trust the promise of a loving parent or a faithful friend? When God makes promises to you, do you just believe them? Or could it be that sometimes, despite our, our great focus on the doctrine of the covenant, that sometimes we end up treating the promises of God like a nice plaque on the wall? You know, we write all those promises on a plaque and we put them on the wall as an adornment for our living room. When I first uh, prepared the sermon for the congregation in Alder Grove, I thought in this context of a story I heard a long time ago about Crowfoot, the chief of the Blackfoot people in southern Alberta that I heard about when I lived there many years ago. One of the great crises in the life of Crowfoot was the encroachment of a national railway across the lands that his people had traditionally inhabited. Blackfoot lands from Medicine Hat to Calgary. And after a great deal of reflection and consultation with his people and other tribal leaders, Crowfoot decided that it would be the best for everyone to give the railway permission to build a line across Blackfoot lands. And it was a very controversial decision that he made. And in return for this um, decision, the railroad company gave Crowfoot a lifelong pass to ride the railroad. And he apparently put it in a leather case and he wore it around his neck for the rest of his life. But he never once rode the railroad. He never used his pass. He never went to the station and got on the train. And I wonder sometimes if that's an analogy for how we can deal with the precious and very great promises of the gospel. Could it be that we know about them and talk about them and even theologize about them, read articles about these precious and very great promises, and somehow in, in the pseudo-sophistication of our theology, we fail to do the one essential thing with those promises, which is to receive them in childlike faith and make them our own and say yes and amen and rejoice in what God has given You see, if God's promises come to us, if we hear the call to believe, but the promises do not meet with faith in the hearers, then the promise won't benefit anyone. Remember the people of Israel when they left Egypt? They left through a great act of God. The Lord showed his power, the power of his right arm, and he delivered his people miraculously through 
terrible plagues and through the party of the Red Sea, and he put them on the road to the land of Canaan. And you could say about those people beyond any shot of a doubt that they were people of promise. They were the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God had given these people astonishingly powerful, concrete promises. He said, I will take you to myself, and I will cause you to live in a land flowing with milk and honey. You will be God's people living in God's land under God's faithful blessing. And what a life that will be for you. And how much I will delight in you, and how much you will delight in me. These people had powerful and precious promises as they left Egypt. But of that entire generation that left Egypt, nobody of adult age ever entered the land of Canaan. Why not? Well, Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4 deal with that, and they say it was because the promises did not meet with faith in the hearers. Without those promises meeting faith, they will not bring to us life. You know where you'll be if you hear the promises and you don't believe them? Just treat them like a plaque on the wall? Or maybe even worse, something to be treated with contempt? Well, then you will be where you were by nature. You will be in the realm of death. You'll be in the realm of sin. And you'll be under the judgment and condemnation of the Lord. And Paul talks, or Peter rather, talks about that reality in the last lines of verse 4 when he says that through these promises you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. What is that world of corruption? Where corruption in this, in this text has a connotation of decay and degeneration and things falling apart and collapsing into ruin. And, and Peter's saying, that's the world in which God found you. That's the world in which the gospel found you. That's the world to which the promises come, into that dead, decaying, ruined world. It's the same world that Paul talks about in Romans 8 when he says that the whole world is in bondage to decay. See, without God's promises, embraced in true faith, that's where you are. You're in that realm of bondage to decay, bondage to sin, which leads inevitably to decay. And that decay, according to Peter, is because of sinful desire. Why are desires so bad? Well, desires aren't bad. God created us as humans with desires. We desire maybe for the sermon to end after sitting for an hour and a while, and we desire some breakfast when we get up in the morning, and we desire a blanket when we're cold, and we desire companionship when we're lonely. We desire a partner, perhaps, if we're single. We have all kinds of desires, and there's nothing wrong with desires. God created us as desiring creatures. Never be ashamed of having desires. Peter isn't talking about desires. He's talking about sinful desires. What are sinful desires? Well, those are the desires that God created within us that get misdirected. We have misdirected desires going on in our hearts. We desire the wrong thing, and we desire the wrong thing for the wrong reason. And often we desire the wrong thing for the wrong reason with great intensity. You want a classic example? Think of someone who's addicted to crack, crack cocaine. They desire something. Their desires have been hijacked and misdirected, and they desire something with great intensity. 
Well, that's a picture of every human being actually outside of the gospel. Every single human being is consumed with desires that lead them not to God, but away from God. And even when our desires, like the crack cocaine addict, keep bringing us into more and more trouble, we don't let them go. And we hang on to them seemingly for dear life instead of desiring God, instead of desiring his glory, instead of desiring his grace. Our desires have been misdirected. And once again, where do those desires go? Those desires go to the realm that the Bible calls simply death, that place of decay and degeneration and ruin. That's where misdirected desires go. You see it very clearly again with an addict. This addict has set his heart on something that will take him to his grave. You see it plain as day. But you know what? That's actually the story of everybody, the story of every sinner. Every sinner has his or her desires set on things that lead not to life, but to death. We need to realize that in every moment of our lives, we are faced with decisions. There are always two paths set out before us. The one path of sinful desire leading us further and further away from God and from the reality of abundant life. And then there is the other path that leads to a greater and greater experience of life. I think of what we read in Galatians 6, where Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will one also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh, that is, the one who continuously indulges sinful desires, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And here's the thing, as you hear the promises of the gospel, and as you believe them, as you make them your own by true faith, something very powerful begins to happen in you. It's truly a miracle. The miracle is the miracle of God transforming your desires. That's what happens when you believe the precious and very great promises of the gospel. Jesus is calling you through those promises to himself. As he calls you to himself, he stamps his own nature on you, and the result of that is the transformation of your desires. And as your desires are changed, your words are changed, and your behavior has changed, your attitude, your whole orientation in life has changed. So that now, instead of contributing to the great degeneration and decline of the world, the very opposite is happening in your life. And so think about this every day of this week. Think about what's happening in your life as you make choices. You're making a choice in all kinds of situations, either to move the world a little bit closer to that terrible reality of death, decay, and ruin, or by believing the promises and living by the power of Christ, you are moving the world of your life and your loved ones and your church and your community. You're moving it all a little bit closer to the kingdom of God, to the heavenly life of righteousness and truth. Is it easy? If you talk to new Christians, they would tell you 
that they have definitely felt in their lives a great change and a new power, but they also will tell you that the old way of life that they once knew is still in them. It's seemingly um, remembered by their body. It's remembered by their desires. It's remembered by their mind. And fighting against it can be very difficult. But I want to end not with the great difficulty of it, but with the supreme possibility of it. However difficult it is, it is not impossible to live a godly life. So never give yourself a pass for godlessness. Never say, well, you know, we're only going to have a small beginning of the new obedience anyway, so no matter how I try, it will always just be a small beginning. That's not really a fully Christian perspective on it. The fully Christian perspective is, Yes, it is very difficult to be godly. Yes, it is very difficult to overcome sinful desires. Yes, it is very difficult to change habits. It is very difficult to change you. But it is not impossible. In fact, it is a supreme possibility of the gospel. It's a constant battle, but it's not a hopeless battle. And why? Well, just take the Bible for real. Listen to Peter. It says, His Christ's divine power has granted to us all things necessary for life and godliness. That is God's word to you. That is his promise. Brothers and sisters, take that promise for real, and the Lord will change you to become his image. Amen. Let's respond to the message of the word with singing of Psalm 100.